to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where things are certainly on the up and up in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 11, which begins with Max stepping onto the Wasteland version of the Wonka Vader, and it ends with the Collector stepping through the curtains in Auntie's penthouse. So we start off this minute with Max, one of the guards, Iron Bar, and the Collector stepping into what is essentially just a steel cage with a solid floor, maybe some mesh down around the edge, and they're all held in by a single chain that Iron Bar reaches across the opening and hooks. And then they're just winched on up out of there. I really liked the staging of this moment. We're not walking really towards anything. All of last minute we watched Max and the group walk through the crowd and whatnot. They didn't seem to be walking towards anything. And even right up to the moment they get on the elevator, they don't seem to have a, like a solid destination. And then randomly they just get on this elevator kind of out of nowhere. I wonder if there's a guard whose job it is to direct the collector and iron bar into that elevator. Hey, do you want to try the elevator today? And they've gotten into the habit of making it not seem like they're going to use the elevator until the very last minute. <laughs> like you when you go to target yes my self-checkout strategy well if they would just leave me alone and not invite me to use a self-checkout then i wouldn't have to try and trick them that i'm not going to the checkout area because <laughs> i'm going to self-checkout so i don't have to talk to anybody don't talk to me yeah putting someone at the self-checkout station is well i mean they have to put somebody there but does that person things, but... have to invite every passerby to use the self-checkout they don't have to be personable they just have to keep an eye on things and right. unlock the machine when you're trying to buy booze yes and it's target so it's not even going to be good booze it'd <laughs> be like amber piss water i don't like beer so cats out of the bag it's just awful awful liquid but you know what isn't awful this elevator because despite the fact that we're dealing with such raw materials in such a wonky collection of technology this thing is rather impressive in its simplicity because not only is it lifted by a single point and the entire design of the elevator goes up to that single point there are also a couple of guide wires attached to the front of that elevator so as those muscle dudes in leather bikinis or whatever they are, are hoisting that thing up, it doesn't start spinning. And you, right. don't, you don't get one of those weird Thor Ragnarok situations where you're trying to talk to someone <laughs> and you just start spinning away from them. Oh, um, they're not winch dudes. They're winch people. Are they a mixed gender team? They are a mixed gender team. If I'm not mistaken, I believe one of them is a woman. I did not get that sense. I, I got the impression that they were both males. Okay. You know, because the impression that one was male, one was female was so strong to me, I did not look closer, but I'm going to pull it up. Yeah, because I remember... I'm pretty sure the one whose back is to the camera is a woman. That's the one that I think is a woman. Yeah. So... I didn't get that sense, so I'm going to let you look that up and... While you're looking that mm -hmm. up, CinemaSins tagged this shot with a sin for what they called homoerotic elevating, but I'm not so much concerned with the fact that this elevator is moved by, you know, 
physical might as opposed to any sort of machinery. I'm more concerned with a detail that they don't get into and they don't explain. I want to believe that this thing has a mechanism like a ratchet, something that as they're raising it and lowering it, that they can restrict the elevator's ability to just drop suddenly because they let go of that handle. Yeah, still looks like a dude to me. Julia held up her phone to show me a still from the scene in it. The one wearing the beret. Yeah. No, that's a woman. I don't know. I mean, okay, I know that my thighs and butt, you know, they don't look that good. So you may never have seen proper feminine muscular thighs and butt. Those are women's thighs and butt. I guess. I don't have a lot of experience scoping out muscular ladies. Like, seriously, that's a woman. I don't know. I think we're going to have to ask our listeners what they think. Okay, so Julia, click on there and find out like what second point. Okay, so I am looking at minute 11, second 10. Okay, as you're watching Thunderdome, go 11 minutes in, pause around tag in seconds, take a look at these winch operators and let us know what y'all think. Yep, I believe (laughs) that the one wearing the beret is a woman. And I think it's just a dude with long hair. And the thighs and butt of a woman. I, I don't, I, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I have no defense over what I think I see. There, and, and her face. You can see around minute second, like eleven, twelve. You can see the profile of her face, and it is feminine. Okay, yeah, listeners, we need your help on this one. Yeah, so maybe I'll put up a a poll or something like that. Yeah, on the listener page, and people can go in and click. <laughs> what they think is going on here one thing is for sure man or woman these folks are both jacked like they are muscled out probably because the only thing they do is crank this elevator up and down with people like the collector inside so this job Mm -hmm. i do feel bad for them because it is a manual labor job but at the same time we see no evidence that they are slaves in any way That they are captives. They don't have any bonds keeping them there. They almost seem like an auxiliary extension of the guards. Yes. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe the guards get rotated in and out. They get winch duty. That makes sense. Although, physically, we can see quite a bit of some of the other guards, and they are not as fit as these two. No. A few of the guards definitely strike me as more of the agility-based fighting force as opposed to the pure strength-based, pour all your points into that type of fighting. Yeah. Something I like about this design for the winch is the fact that you've got two people and they're facing opposite directions. So while they both crank in the same direction, they get to utilize different muscle groups depending on which way the elevator is going. And I imagine they probably switch off day to day that way. You know, okay, today I'm going to work this group of muscles and tomorrow I'm going to work the other group of muscles. Right. Although the going up and going down of the elevator always has to be equal. Mm -hmm. So arguably they'll get equal work on the different set of muscles going forward, going backward. It probably explains why their muscles are so well developed. Yes. Specifically, the person with their back towards us, be they male or female, is quite a bit more built on their upper body than their lower body. Maybe it is a man. Maybe that's why he looks feminine. Could be. Because his butt 
and legs are slimmer than his top half mm. by the nature of his job. Yeah. I think if I could make one major change about this mechanism, I would actually raise it a little further up off the ground because when the wheel is at the top of the curve, they seem to be able to stand up rather straight. But in order to pass that wheel around fully, they have to bend almost fully over. And that just can't it's feel not, good on your back. No, it's not healthy. You know, I Especially feel like, for long-term repetition. Yeah, I feel like if the wheel was just a little bit higher and they didn't have to lean over quite as far, it'd be a little bit nicer. But I agree. when you've got to anchor something like that to the ground, I'm sure you're kind of restricted about how high and how much it can move. Iron bar pulls the chain across the opening. I found that a little silly, mostly because these are grown people. Well, they're all men, so I can say these are grown men. And they're the type of men who are like rough around the edges, tough. So they should know better than to just step out of an elevator. Yes. An iron bar doesn't really seem like the safety first kind of guy. I mean, he just invited a knife flinging guy to do an intimidation display in the middle of a group of people. So he's obviously not interested in safety. Yeah. But he is right now. I mean, we can't all be the evil empire from Star Wars operating without hand railings ever. <laughs> and we're going to see once we actually get up into Auntie's penthouse, like there don't seem to be too many more hand railings. So we should appreciate the hand railing we have as made out of chain as it is while we have it. Because, you know, it's a post-apocalypse. You might not always have luxuries and niceties like hand railings and protective chains to keep you from falling out of things. And I mean, you look at the collector, and he seems like the kind of guy that would bumble his way out of an elevator. Yeah, but he doesn't. You gotta protect against that possibility, though. I guess so. I mean, otherwise, Collector Sammy from over in the auto intake door, he's gonna get moved over into the main door, and then everyone's gonna take advantage of him. There was another mm. collector that I made up the other day, and I cannot remember all of the names that I used, so <laughs> I'm gonna stick with Frank and Sammy at this point. Okay. Anyway, if I had to make one more change to this elevator, it would probably be to add a counterweight and an electric motor. That way you don't have to have people turning this wheel by hand. You get a big old rock that weighs about the same as that elevator, maybe plus a few couple of pounds, and that way you don't have to worry about the electric motor burning out because it's trying to push too much torque because everything will just kind of work the way regular elevators do. That makes me wonder how much energy Bartertown is actually producing. Are they actually producing enough to turn on all the lights and to run an elevator? It's a good question. Or are they just producing enough to keep the lights on? Which light bulbs don't require that much energy. It all depends on the kind of light bulb, really. I think it's safe to assume that it's the least efficient type of light bulb that they have. <laughs> yeah, they might as well be running the whole town off of those old large christmas bulbs that get really hot on the christmas tree well if they're from the 80s then yeah that's what they're using <laughs> max and iron bar and the collector one of the guards they're in the elevator they start going up we get to see the people winching the next shot we get is a zoom out shot we start on them in the elevator as they're going up and we zoom out through the group of people we see another horse-drawn carriage go by and we pass through a crowd of people and they are patrons of the Atomic Cafe there in Barter Town. I love the inclusion of the Atomic Cafe because I feel like it's one of those things that just inspired other things in like the Fallout games. 
this mm. idea that you've got nuclear era type stuff that's dictating the culture and look of your places of business and whatnot. And it's fun. It's fun. I appreciate that they are making new culture for themselves, not just grasping onto what's left over. Mm -hmm. They're coming up with new things. And that's good. Yeah, I think that's one of the major themes in Thunderdome. It's to the point where people are no longer able to scavenge. And so in order to survive, they need to make new stuff. Yes. And Thunderdome is all about making new stuff. I looked on the Google map, which I like to do. The closest atomic cafe to us is located down on Cabot Street in Beverly, Mass. If we wanted to go down there and check it out, it's coffee shops. I mean, meh, meh. But there also appears to be another one across the way in Salem, Massachusetts. And if you are in a traveling mood, there's also Atomic Cafes in Montreal, Quebec, Hamtram, Michigan, and Costa Mesa, California. Our Australian listeners can actually head over to Bendigo in Victoria and find the Atomic Cafe there as well. I don't think it's a chain. I think it's just people who uh, all like the name. I'm actually surprised that there are so few. It does seem like the kind of name that's just a touch generic that people just come up with and just want to use. Yeah. The Atomic Cafe is also a 1982 American documentary film produced and directed by Jane Loader, Kevin Rafferty, and Pierce Rafferty. The film covers the beginning of the era of nuclear warfare created from a broad range of archival material from the 1940s, 1950s, and early 1960s, including newsreel clips, television news footage, U.S. government-produced films, including military training films, advertisements, television, and radio programs. News footage reflected the prevailing understanding of the media and public. Though the topic of atomic holocaust is a grave matter, you know, everyone's afraid of dying in nuclear fire, the Atomic Cafe approaches it with black humor. Much of the humor derives from the modern audience's reaction to the old training film, such as the duck and cover film shown in schools. A quote to illustrate what can be perceived as black humor culled from the movie states, Viewed from a safe distance, the atomic bomb is one of the most beautiful sights ever seen by man, as declared by a U.S. Army training film. Okay. So that is something you can just run out and watch. Yeah. What was the date on the documentary? 1982. Okay. It was released three years before they released Thunderdome. Okay. Because they did a lot of the filming in 84, 85. Okay. Somewhere in those two years. I don't remember exactly where. From the shot of the Atomic Cafe sign, we transition over to a wide shot that shows Auntie's penthouse against the sky. It's a very nice profile shot. We get to see a lot of dark and contrasty lines as the elevator slowly rises. This minute is lifting us higher than we've ever been lifted before. I actually found this profile shot of the penthouse quite odd. Mm -hmm. Partly because the label that is on that structure is the penthouse. You think of a penthouse as, you know, the top floor of a building of a certain height. This isn't the top floor of anything. There are no other floors. There is no other building. So does it really qualify as a penthouse? Well, it is technically the topmost floor. It's also the bottommost floor, if you don't count the ground. So a one-story building is a penthouse. If it's lifted, let's see, I don't remember where I saw the number, but I think the penthouse is approximately, I want to say 80 feet, about 25 meters tall at its peak. 
So like the elevator only really has to go up like 65, 70 feet or 19 to 21 meters. But I believe that if you take your single story home and you raise it up about 20 meters off the ground, that you can refer to that as your penthouse because you have pented your house. (laughs) (laughs) You get bonus points if it's five-sided. Okay. So there are two definitions of penthouse doing just a quick Google search. Number one. An apartment on the top floor of a tall building, typically luxuriously fitted and offering fine views, which this is a penthouse by that definition. Absolutely. No problem. Definition number two, an outhouse or shelter built into the side of a building having a sloping roof. And that is kind of the opposite of a luxuriously fitted room offering fine views. I love it how they sometimes use the phrase fine views to denote a view that can be spectacular at times. And they make it sound so humdrum like, oh, how are the views? Oh, they're fine. They're fine views. It's like, no, no, these are fine views. Right. Like a fine wine. Exactly. (laughs) What do you think of the design of this penthouse just from the outside? Oh, from the outside, it's really nothing special. Really? Because I thought it kind of looked like a UFO or something. Yeah, I was going to say it's... spacey. Yes. Is there something about that shape that is easy to construct? I don't know. Is that why UFOs are shaped that way and why this penthouse is shaped that way? One thing's for sure. It has a very interesting profile. With the swoops and the curves, it doesn't look like the very rough and angular wasteland style that you usually see. No, and once we get up into her penthouse, we're going to see the interior is nothing like anything else we see either. Auntie Entity has taken advantage of her position, not in a bad way, just an advantage, to create this room, these apartments that suit her, even if they are so different than the surroundings. Right. That doesn't matter to her that she is so elevated above everybody else and so separated from them, I think that works to her advantage. In fact, the next thing we see is the elevator reaching the top of its trip and now it's in the penthouse and all of the men depart from the elevator and we can hear a saxophone playing. And what's interesting about this shot is that the saxophone playing is really the only other thing to hear. We've just come from an incredibly busy, incredibly loud, chaotic even marketplace with the clanging soundtrack music, and you can't hear any of that up here. It's completely different. They are a world apart, both figuratively and literally. And I think that's exactly the point, is that Auntie lives a completely different lifestyle than the people she rules over. This can be equated with a lot of our leaders. I mean, you look at the President of the United States or the Queen of England, they live much more luxurious lives than we do. And that's what we want for them. We want them to live in a nice house and we want them to go on nice vacations Mm -hmm. and we want them to have nice things because that represents our country as a whole. Right. You want your leader to have a certain quality of humility about them. But at the same time, if you can go to the rest of the world or in this instance, the rest of the wasteland and say, we are barter town. We are ruled by auntie and auntie lives in that penthouse. Look how amazing it is. Look how above everything it is. Our leader lives in an elevated position away from the dust that is the wasteland. 
Land. And it's something that is continued in Fury Road with Immortan Joe. Immortan Joe lives at the top of the Citadel. He is the master of that large compound (laughs) of giant stone pillars and all that. He lives up and above people. Yes. So people literally look up to him. Yes. Because he is above them. Thinking back to Road Warrior about the two factions and the leaders in charge, we had Papagallo, who was almost no different than the people he led. And we had a lot of criticisms about his leadership. And he very, very nearly had a mutiny on his hands. And then you have the Lord Humongous, who didn't live in an elevated position, but I would say his vehicle was kind of his elevated position. It was bigger and nicer and better fueled and better armed than any of the other vehicles. Yeah. Kind of serves a similar purpose. And in the movie version of the ending, he never had any trouble keeping control. Yeah. The thing I like about the leaders in The Road Warrior is that when it's time for them to take control of a situation, they elevate themselves. Humongous stands above the rest of his raiders on his vehicle, and Papagallo goes up onto that catwalk to address the people. And when it's time for Big Rebecca to try and convince everybody to mutiny, she gets up on top of that bus. Not quite completely on Papagallo's level, because the catwalk is a little higher, but she elevates herself into that leadery position. Very interesting. And so we've got a continuation of that theme here. We've got another continuation in Fury Road. This idea that the leader separates and elevates yes. over the people they lead for good or ill. The main thing about Road Warrior that I think of is that when the going gets tough, Humongous and Papagallo, they get down on their level with people. Like when Wes gets delusions of grandeur and tries to steal the Humongous's machine from him. Humongous puts him in that bear hold and puts him to sleep and drops him down. He gets on their level and then puts them back down. And then when they're just hanging out, he's sitting there drawing in the dirt. He's on the level with the rest of his men. Papagallo more or less does the same thing. Like when it's time to actually make decisions, he descends from the catwalk and they sit in council and whatnot. Like they get down and they get things done. That's not what Auntie does. And we'll meet Auntie on Friday. That's the fun that we get to have for this week. But she likes to stay very much above things. And that's her style. I thought the transition from Barter Town ground level to the penthouse, it was very striking. You already mentioned the music, much more subdued and calm. And what struck me specifically was the coloring. Mm. Down in Barter Town, lots of browns and reds and it's very well lit because it's in the middle of the day once you get into the penthouse it's blue which is a very calming color but it's evenly lit because it's lit by the outside light but it's still not strongly lit yeah it's soft and the book makes a bigger deal than the movie does about the drapery that like creates rooms in the walls They talk for a good few sentences. They go on about how this is clean linen and how that is so unique and unrealistic, which, I mean, that sort of thought process doesn't really translate to the movie, so. Yeah, it's much more gray. It almost seems like a very fine mesh. There were times specifically when one of the guys is pulling the curtain aside so they can all walk through from the elevator when it almost looked like it was a very fine chain mail. Yeah. Like her dress is a fine chain mail. 
it almost looked like the same material. Hmm. Speaking of them walking through these drapes, I noticed something about the collector that I haven't mentioned before. It appears to me that though the collector is wearing trousers, he's also sporting a, and I apologize if I pronounce this wrong, a sporan, a traditional part of male Scottish Highland dress. It's a pouch that performs the same function as pockets on the pocketless kilt. Yes, I believe he is. Huh. I wonder how he acquired that. He is called the collector, so I'm willing to bet that that was brought in as trade for entry mm-hmm. into Barter Town, and he fancied it, so we took it. Yeah, and I mean, there are a lot of Australians who are of Scottish descent who would bring that tradition with them down under, so it makes a lot of sense being there. All right. But it's a fun little detail that I didn't notice before. We don't get to hear any conversation or really see much of anything other than the people walking through the drapes. We're going to pick up with them at the beginning of Friday's minute. So we'll see who they're up here in the penthouse to see and how this whole thing is going to shake out. And we'll have a lot of fun on Friday because we finally get to see Auntie. Oh, cannot wait. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com, and our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching Searching for Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 11 of Beyond Thunderdome. See you next time. Ah!